Welcome to Have You Heard, the AABP podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Pat Gordon from Iowa State University. Welcome, Pat. Thank you. So, uh, Pat, tell us a little about yourself, where you went to veterinary school, what you did afterwards, and how you ended up at Iowa State, maybe what you do there. Yeah, um, I'm a 1993 graduate of Iowa State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, Following graduation, I practiced in a smaller dairy practice in southwest Wisconsin for seven years and then moved on down to Arizona in that milk shed and and practiced in those dairies for an additional seven years. Um, In 2007, uh, Dean Dean Thompson recruited me back to Iowa State to do production medicine uh, in dairy at Iowa State, and that's essentially what I do. A portion of my time is uh, providing clinical service to dairies while educating fourth-year veterinary students primarily. Fantastic. And Pat is the current AABP vice president, so thank you for your service to AABP. Have you enjoyed uh, uh, working with the AABP board and executive committee so far? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a huge learning experience, and I was, I was really glad I got the opportunity to run again. Fantastic. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, I was a, a primarily a dairy practitioner before I accepted this job with AABP, and, and uh, you know, you're aware that... Uh, Milking parlors was a big part of my practice. Milk quality is a, a, a huge part of my practice. And today we're going to talk about uh, a particular uh, milk quality mastitis problem, uh, and that's uh, Klebsiella. So maybe tell us a little bit about Klebsiella, uh, both for veterinarians and producers, and, and then why it can be a, a problem bug. Yeah, so you and I have kind of similar interests and backgrounds in, in through practice. And um, at Iowa State, one of my um, responsibilities is, is the herd veterinarian for our university dairy, which is a, about a 400-cow um, Holstein and Jersey dairy. And uh, as part of our teaching um, within the fourth year, we actually go out and do their hospital treatments for them every day. Oh, about uh, maybe in 2011 or 12, we started to notice that we were having some more severe clinical cases of mastitis um, with a High, high percentage of those animals that were non-responsive and actually a high percentage dying. Um, at the time, we were betting on sawdust, um, and we started doing some mastitis cultures and realized that we were dealing with, with some Klebsiella pneumonia cases, uh, which Klebsiella is a, is a, a gram-negative bacteria similar in, in families to um, what, what E. coli is. Uh, but uh, the research in our certainly ours and other veterinarians and producers' clinical experiences is that it's it presents a much more severe clinical picture than does even E. coli, which has traditionally been known as the bad um, mastitis pathogen um, from a clinical standpoint. Um, and so we've been dealing with it in our herd now for uh, since pretty much 2012. We've we've improved the situation some through vaccination, but it still continues to be a problem for us. Okay, and. And why, what are some risk factors for Klebsiella? You mentioned that you were betting on sawdust. And, you know, sometimes producers, they don't have an option with their betting. It's sure. what they have. That's their facilities. Without any, you know, without any major capital investments, they may not be able to fix, you know, some of these risk factors. But what are some risk factors for dairy farms for club mastitis? Yeah, so, you know, when you and I went to school, I'm sure you probably had some of the same um, references for lectures and stuff also, and we've always thought it was associated with um, sawdust that didn't get fully dried down. But the reality of it is is if you start in, start looking at the environment that our cows live in, you can find it everywhere. Um, and it's very commonly found in the intestinal tract of cows, um, and it, it replicates quite well in that environment. Um, so some of the research that's been done looking at sources have shown that it's it's in feed, it's in water tanks, it's in bedding materials, whether it be 
uh, sawdust or dried manure solids or even recycled sand has got a fairly can have a fairly good load of club Ciala in it. Um, you know, so as far as the risk factors, you know, vetting cows on sources that allow for bacteria to grow in it, even though we think of sand as being um, non-organic, when we have the re recycled bedding material can certainly build up, and if we have build up of manure, um, that can contribute to it also. Um, it's a very diverse bug. It's got a lot of um, genetic diversity in, in the species, so we don't tend to see familial outbreaks of it. Um, it's typically found in pretty high numbers, although it doesn't take a, take a real high number of organisms to create a clinical case. In our herd, we found it to be pretty evenly distributed throughout lactation. Um, unlike E. coli, where we tend to see it more in the first 100 days in milk, the Club Cielo cases have been distributed pretty evenly throughout. Commonly see it in our third lactation and above animals. Great, great. And so, you know, you've identified some risk factors, and sometimes producers will make assumptions, oh, I have a, I have a club problem, or that case of mastitis, you know, oh, that cow's sick, she must have a coliform, hot coliform case, mm -hmm. you know. We've identified risk factors. How can producers um, identify if club is a problem? How should they involve their veterinarian in that discussion? Yeah, so they need to make sure that they're um, collecting some samples, uh, milk samples, before they do any treatments. If they are doing intermammary treatments um, of those animal of, of those of those cases, and then go ahead and submit those to a, um, a diagnostic laboratory. Um, generally, the the organism has a pretty unique um, look to it on, on our typical auger plates, but some work that was done by the Wisconsin and Michigan State group and just recently published here in the last six months to a year has shown that in, with some strains of Club Ciela, it can often be mistaken as E. coli. Hmm. So it, it would be worthwhile to, to do more than just a culture. Um, you might want to um, go ahead, especially early on, and, and do some um, advanced characterization like MALDI or something like that okay. that a regular diagnostic lab would do as compared to what we would do just in a veterinary clinic from a culture standpoint. Okay. And the, 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 the current vaccines that farms might be using, like, uh, you know, your uh, um, um, JVAC, J5 vaccines, Endovac, things like that, mm -hmm. are they going to help against Klebsiella? Yeah, so the, the dairy that uh, we have at Iowa State has, has heavily used J5 vaccine. Uh, I think they're all pretty similar in their, their protection level, depending on how many doses you use. And uh, we've tried boostering, you know, additional doses in lactation. We've tried boostering coming into summertime because our, our, uh, um, our cases are always higher in the summertime, um, you know, whether it's heat stress or just the ex extra water and moisture we have in the environment. Um, and we really had no control, didn't really seem to be able to knock it back by just using the traditional J5 vaccines. So um, that hasn't been successful for us. Um, when um, Epitopics brought their autogenous club SRP vaccine to the market, we, were, we got in contact with them very quickly, um, and that, that really has resulted in a pretty nice um, improvement in our clinical signs as a result of implementing that vaccine. Right. Good, good. And, you know, when do we know uh, that, you know, Klebsiella is a concern? You know, if a, if a farm is using, you know, a, a core antigen vaccine, right. which would be a J5 or a JVAC vaccine, uh, when they're using that vaccine and they're still getting, and they're getting uh, cases, um, you know, I know that Klebsiella is difficult to treat. There's, there's you know, some calling issues, some even death or loss of quarters, et cetera. 
Um, what are some things that it might indicate, you know, hey, this is a concern and we need to look elsewhere, and what should that process be? Yeah, so I think, the, the you know, the other thing, like you said, uh, the death loss and the number of animals that just stop milking completely. Um, in our experience, about two-thirds of our cases um, prior to um, initiating the uh, um, Club Ciala vaccine were either being sold uh, or were dying. Um, wow. with about a third of those di actually dying um, either within a few days of the clinical case presenting itself or there's some secondary bacterial infections that develop and, you know, maybe a month later or two months later they end up with a, a septicemia or some type of um, uh, systemic infection. Um, so the, what, what you'll probably realize is that the, the death loss, the failure to respond to treatment is much higher. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the thought process to start through this investigation and look a little bit deeper. Okay. All right. And so I know that, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you mentioned that you worked with Epitopics uh, with their autogenous vaccine. You know, can you maybe tell us what is an autogenous vaccine and then talk a little bit about the vaccine that's available? Um, you know, how would veterinarians go about getting that vaccine put into a herd that they think it might be utilized in? Yeah, so um, actually the autogenous vaccine itself, um, we, we, um, we never did use the autogenous separately. When we contacted them about it, uh, we quickly went to conversations about whether they were interested in taking this vaccine to USDA licensure. Okay. Um, and I thought that our herd was a nice herd to be able to use it in just due to the high um, prevalence of clinical cases that we were seeing. And so what we've used is essentially the, the USDA licensed vaccine that's out there today. Um, and with most of the Club Ciela isolates, the, the protein pattern that's, that's present isn't all that different between the Club Cielas on farms. And so it just happened that the, the strains that were more prevalent in our herd were also in line with the strains that they had in their, in their vaccine. And so we initiated a, um, a USDA licensure vaccine in uh, about 2015 and 16. Uh, we split the herd in half. Half the animals got vaccinated. The other half just got the um, adjuvant with no antigen present in it, and uh, the cows were co-mingled throughout the entire time frame. So we had vaccinated animals and non-vaccinated animals or placebo animals in the same pens. Um, so they all got the same exposure. Um, as a result of that, we saw about a 75% um, reduction in clinical cases um, associated with Club Ciela. Um, interestingly enough, um, we also saw about a 50% reduction when you looked at all coliforms. Um, so it, it does potentially have some benefit against other coliforms besides um, the uh, Club Ciela cases. Um, the vaccine works a little bit differently than the J5s, and the J5 is actually built to the endotoxin um, of the, that the ba bacteria produces. The SRP vaccines actually... Um, prevent the bacteria from taking iron up, which is an essential nutrient for the bacteria when it gets into the mammary gland. And so it binds up that iron or, or uh, pro prohibits the bacteria from taking it up, and it essentially slows the growth so the clinical case doesn't, get t doesn't take off as well. Um, and so that has led to the licensure now of um, the SRP vaccine. Um, that's been on the market now for probably just a little bit over a year. Um, you know, as far as implementation, um, the, I guess the really important thing to realize from our, our vaccine trial is that we dis did not discontinue the J5 vaccine. Okay. Um, and so producers and veterinarians often will call me and ask me, well, can I replace J5? And I honestly don't know. Uh, we've not done that work. 
So we continue to use both J5 and um, the SRP Club Ciela vaccine um, called Clubvax in our, in our herds. Um, we actually use the two doses, give, give the two vaccines simultaneously. Um, we give one at the day of dry off um, along with a uh, uh, IVR BVD modified live vaccine. And then when the animals are moved to close of about three to four weeks ahead of expected calving, we repeat the two mastitis vaccines and give a um, clostridial vaccine simultaneously. So we're only giving three vaccines. Um, we're only doing it in the dry period. Um, and that's worked quite well for us. Um, as a result, what are, what's happened in our herd since we started whole herd vaccinating is we've noticed that while we still see club Ciala cases, we haven't really changed the environment at the dairy because of some financial constraints. Um, what we see today as far as clinical presentation is much milder cases. Our death loss is almost non-existent as a result of club Ciala cases. Um, and so the, the clinical picture is much less severe um, due to the, the nature of including this vaccine in, into, the, into the herd. Um, we do know that if we put it into, um, into lactating cows, it will give us a two or three or four pound drop in milk for three or four days, but that's pretty common with any vaccine we would give to a lactating dairy cow. Um, the one really cool thing about our study that was published in the Journal of Dairy Science was that we actually saw an um, improvement in milk daily milk production in the cows that were vaccinated compared to the placebo cows. And, you know, we didn't really investigate as to why, but it probably – it probably um, is due to the cost of just having a subclinical infection in some of these cows from from uh, consist or from persistent infections or new new infections. And so it's it's an SRP vaccine. So many of our listeners may uh, be f more familiar with the Salmonella SRP yep, vaccine. Right. It's a you know a common vaccine that's yep. implemented on dairy farms. So it's the same technology. Kind of the same idea with the uh, lack of uptake, uh, inability to uptake iron, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. So okay. there's the salmonella, SRP, and then there's also been an E. coli right. um, for reducing uh, food-borne E. coli infections right. in, in cattle. And so um, all the, all the gram-negative bacteria have similar SRP structures or iron uptake structures. Um, and so these vaccines are really focused at that particular component of it. Great, great. And, you know, you talked a little bit about milk drop in lactating cows. Did mm -hmm. you see any other side effects uh, when you incorporated this vaccine in the herd you manage? Yeah, not, um, not directly in our, um, in our herd per se. Um, as part of the USDA licensure, though, the uh, vaccine company has to take the vaccine out to three or four herds um, across the United States geographically different and implement the vaccine, um, two doses of the vaccine, as the label would say, in both um, in, in lactating cows as is prescribed and then also in non-lactating animals, so essentially heifers that are coming close to having their first calf. And in two of the study sites, we did see um, some, uh, some death loss in the first lactation, I'm sorry, in the heifers that were coming to their first lactation. Okay. And so on the, on the label of the vaccine, it does have a statement that says that you may not want to use this in in animals before they've had their first calf. Right. Um, we have no reports of any death loss after the first calving, um, but in ha animals before they do calve, a small percentage of heifers may may react. And in, in there was there was three, three animals out of um, the Iowa study, the Iowa safety study, and there was one animal at another site that was lost. Um, and so typically it's a endotoxin type response. You see a pretty high fever 
within about 24 hours and then a sudden death with some lungs that are pretty severely affected. Um, fortunately, a small percentage, but you never want to be the veterinarian who recommends putting a vaccine into a group of heifers and having some death loss associated right. with that. So the companies are aware of it. The USDA is aware of it. Um, and so when I consult with producers and veterinarians, I, I go back to what our study said is that we don't see a lot of mastitis in early lactation and we don't see a lot of mastitis in first lactation animals. And so what I recommend to people who have no history of using the vaccine in their herd is to um, wait until 30 or 60 days into lactation and then go ahead and, okay. and administer the two doses of vaccine then. Um, and, you know, I oftentimes will just recommend if you're going to be giving your first repro shots at 35 or 40 days or something like that, just tie that together. Okay. Um, and, and that's that's the recommendation that I give people who come to me with no history of using their herd. And when you, uh, you know, when you implemented this vaccine on the ISU dairy, uh, did you just implement it by doing the at dry off and at move to close up? Is that how you initially implemented the vaccine into the herd? Yeah, because we were, um, we were in the winter when we um, discontinued the, or finished the trial up, and so we just continued to do our dry cows. Um, in, the, um, in the first year, we did go through and booster all of the animals in May, the first part of May. Um, and we have not done that the last couple of years either, so I, I haven't really seen a difference in clinical cases or severity of clinical cases. So we've just stuck with doing it in the dry period. We're handling the cows anyway. It's not a special work day that we have to create uh, on busy operations already, um, and it's worked well for us. Okay, so if a herd's having an outbreak, they could just implement that protocol, you know, per the label, go ahead and start it in, you know, at dry off is, mm -hmm. is what you did, and you saw a good uh, result from that in your study. Yeah, in our study, we actually saw better um, better preventative fractions when we did it, did the animals in the dry period as compared to doing it in the lactation. That might have been a limitation of, of animal numbers that were um, that were vaccinated in lactation, um, but we did see better performance by using the dry period. So, uh, uh, Pat, you said that this uh, that this research project was published, and, and where and when was that published? So our members can find that article. Yeah, so we published it in the Journal of Dairy Science, um, and it was uh, dated in November of 2018. So, if you go to the um, the website, you should be able to pull it up off their off their website. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate this update about Klebsiella. Um, I think this gave uh, some really valuable information to our, uh, to our listeners. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you enjoy doing outside of veterinary medicine? Pat, I know you're really busy inside veterinary medicine, but what, what do you like to do in your spare time when you're not uh, thinking about cows? Uh, yeah, I think about cows a little, little too much maybe. <laughs> um, well, so I, I, I have three children. Um, my oldest is out in, in the workforce, and my two two girls are in uh, college right now. So getting to spend some time on weekends and whatnot with them and and uh, with their significant others that are available right now is always good. I really enjoy spending time with my wife, just sitting around watching TV and whatnot, reading a book. Um, and then I also um, maybe it pushes me to be to exercise. I actually um, referee soccer. Oh, cool! So high school and and youth soccer. Fantastic. Well, great. Well, we really appreciate your service to AABP and your contributions to the industry, Pat. Thanks so much for being with us today. You're welcome. Come on down for a check. Come on down for a check.